Well, good morning, College Park. Hope that you guys are doing well uh, this morning. Uh, I have uh, one praise and one prayer request before we uh, jump in this morning. The praise um, uh, revolves around the Christmas offering results so far between the Fishers Campus and North Indy Campus. Uh, we took a Christmas offering uh, last week for the Brookside uh, Ministries, and as of two days ago, we are up to uh, $576,700 so far, which is a great um, start for the Christmas offering. Want to continue to uh, encourage you to uh, give towards the Christmas offering if you haven't already. Uh, it wasn't just last Sunday, but this will go uh, through the first week uh, in January, and that's between both uh, campuses. Now, the prayer request uh, I want to uh, give to you uh, this morning um, uh, revolves around Grace Church, which is right across the street. Today is their first Sunday in their new building. And, uh, and so if you think of Grace, and honestly, if you're driving down Olio Road, or what I like to call Holio Road, since there's so many churches there, um, just offer up a prayer for those churches as you, as you drive by or as you think uh, of these churches. We're not in competition with them uh, whatsoever, but we're on the same team, and we're part of the same kingdom, and there are many, many people in Fishers and the surrounding community that need a church. And, uh, and so I was actually at Grace this morning um, early. Uh, a group of, of us pastors uh, in the area, about seven or eight of us, just went over there and prayed uh, over Pastor Kevin and just to, just to make sure that they know that we're in full support um, of them. So just want to encourage you to pray for them um, as you think uh, of them. And so with that, let me pray, and we'll dive into Hebrews 4. God, we do just uh, pause, and we want to lift up Grace Church to you even in this moment. And uh, Lord, a lot of excitement and joy uh, is taking place uh, in that building uh, right now. And uh, Lord, I pray amidst all the excitement that their uh, chief affection would be on Jesus today. Lord, not on a permanent building. And uh, so, Lord, would you use the preaching of the word uh, this morning in that building to further uh, your beautiful name and your gospel message with them. So, Lord, would you continue to sustain grace and, uh, Lord, continue to have them be a beacon of light in this community. And, uh, Lord, as we turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 4 this morning, um, God, we pray that you would open up our hearts, God, that you'd open up our eyes, God, help us to see the beauty of of Jesus today. God, we thank you that you know each and every one of our struggles today. God, you know what each and every one of us is wrestling with today. And Lord, thank you that you promise to meet us there in our struggle. God, thank you that we don't have to hide what we're wrestling with from you, but Lord, you enter into our weakness and you supply grace. And so would you do that now in this moment? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Well, it wasn't until uh, I was a teenager that I started to realize that the Christmas season is not always happy and fun for everyone. Now, don't get me wrong, Christmas season can be a really, really special time of year. You've got, you know, the big Christmas tree and you're lighting the Christmas tree. You've got tons of gifts and different uh, family traditions and you get to see family and friends and, and all that. So Christmas is really, really good. And yet at the same time, for many of us, this can be a really, really challenging time of year. It's not just a challenging time of year because you're stressed out trying to find the right kind of gift for that loved one or because of the challenging family dynamics. 
But it's challenging because for whatever reason, during this time of year, for many of us, we start to say things like this, like another Christmas, and I still miss that loved one that's passed away. Or we say things like, another Christmas, and I'm still not pregnant. Or another Christmas, and I'm still single. Or another Christmas, and my child is still not walking with the Lord. And I know for me in my own life, but part of the challenge of this time of year is that it tends to bring up painful memories from the past. I know for me, during this time of year, I always remember coming home from from college over Christmas, and the day after Christmas, finding out that my parents were headed for a divorce. So this time of year, on, on one hand, is, is a really happy and joyful, and it's full of celebration. At the same time, it can be extremely challenging. And I think part of the challenge is that beneath uh, kind of the, the holiday cheer are those painful realities that, that kind of get exposed and even amplified by the holidays. Part of the challenge, even during this Christmas season, for many of us is is how do we have these two different emotions, these two different realities of Christmas being happy and yet life being hard at the same time? And I think that is why this sermon series is so very important. I think that's why this sermon series that we launched last week, looking at why the incarnation matters, is so crucial in understanding how to gaze our attention upon Jesus during this time of year. Last week, Pastor Mark uh, launched uh, our first week in this series looking at how the fact that Jesus was born, how that actually impacts how we live. We looked at three things last week. We looked at how Jesus entered our world, that Jesus saved our lives, and that Jesus has changed our identity. And so today, uh, we're going to tackle this issue of looking at the temptation of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4 and why that matters for us. And so part of my hope and part of the aim for this morning is that we would not only look at how Jesus was tempted and how that further shapes our understanding of the incarnation, but what I want to look at this morning is how the fact that Jesus was tempted, how that actually ministers to us who are going through a difficult time during the Christmas season And we're trying to hold those two different emotions in tension of it being a really happy and celebratory season and yet it being really a challenging time in this year. And so this passage I have broken up in three uh, different sections and they all start with the letter C. So if you're into that, that's the direction that we're going. Here's number one. Number one is the committed confession. The committed confession in verse uh, 14. It reads this way. It says, Since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Our passage begins, and immediately we are introduced to this concept of having a great high priest referring to Jesus. Now, notice how the author of Hebrews describes Jesus here. He doesn't just say that he's a high priest, but the author of Hebrews describes him as a great high priest. The reason why I'm drawing your attention to that word great is because the author is trying to elevate Jesus above any other high priest that has ever existed or will ever exist. In fact, all throughout Hebrews, we see Jesus being described 
as belonging to a completely different category than anything or any one. Let me show you what I mean by that. That in Hebrews chapter 1, we see that Jesus is greater than the angels because Jesus is the divine king. In Hebrews chapter 3, we learn that Jesus is greater than Moses because Jesus isn't just the servant of God, but Jesus is the son of God. That Jesus is greater than Joshua who provides the true rest for the people of God. That Jesus is the greater high priest, better than Aaron because he's sinless and he is eternal. And on and on and on, Hebrews goes describing why Jesus is greater and why Jesus is superior. In fact, I would say that Hebrews is essentially a book written listing all of the different reasons why Jesus is greater and why Jesus is superior, therefore endure. Therefore, cling to Jesus all the more because he is greater and he is superior. In our passage this morning, we see that Jesus is the great high priest, that there's no one like him, there's no one on his level. Now, what does it mean that Jesus was the great high priest, that Jesus is our great high priest? Well, we have some insight here in chapter 5, verse 1. Just look down a couple verses, and it says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And so what this means is the high priest in the Old Testament was the mediator between God and the people, that God would come in judgment because of the sins of the people, and the high priest would stand in the place of the people. The high priest in the Old Testament would do this by offering animal sacrifices that satisfied God's justice. And so with Jesus being our great high priest, he fulfills that by not offering animal sacrifices, but by offering his own life on the cross once and for all. And so because we have this great high priest who has covered our sins with his own life, and because he's in the very presence of God, he has passed through the heavens, the author of Hebrews gives us a goal. He gives us a goal in the form of a command in verse 14. Look at the end of verse 14 here. He says, hold fast to your confession, that because we have this high priest who has covered our sin, therefore hold fast the confession of your faith. Now, to hold fast literally means to embrace something firmly, that it could be translated as to be fully committed to something. And what we are to be fully committed to is this confession or our profession that Jesus is the Son of God. That our confession that we are to be fully committed to is that Jesus is greater than anything or anyone. That Jesus is not just a good moral teacher, he's greater than that. That Jesus is not just a loving rabbi, but he's greater than that. That Jesus isn't on the same level as Muhammad or Allah, he's greater than that. That Jesus isn't just some excuse to buy presents for, but Jesus is greater than that. In fact, our confession, the, the profession of our faith, is that Jesus is the greatest. That Jesus is the Son of God who came down in the form of a baby. That he left the riches of heaven and he became poor. And he was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, a perfect life. He got up on the cross in the place of sinners and he died for our sins 
purchasing our freedom and was raised to new life three days later and now sits at the right hand of the Father with whom will come back one day to fulfill his endless reign. That that's our confession that we are to hold to, that Jesus is greater than anything. In fact, Jesus is greater than Abraham. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the old covenant. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the American dream. He's greater than your greatest temptations. He's greater than your successful career. He's greater than your loneliness, than your deepest, darkest secrets. Jesus is greater. That that's our confession. That's what we are to hold fast to. And if you look at this verse here, the reason why the author of Hebrews tells us about this great high priest and then gives us this command to hold fast is because we need help. Like it's, it's really hard to hold fast to that confession that Jesus is actually greater. Like I don't know about you, but for me in my own life, to live out the reality that Jesus is greater than my sin is hard. That Jesus is greater than any temptation, than, than any, anything that's appealing to my flesh, that Jesus is greater. That's really difficult for me, and so I need this high priest to help me and to enable me. It's hard to declare that Jesus is greater than pursuing your worth in how much money you make. It's hard to declare that Jesus is greater than putting your worth and having the perfect family or having the most well-behaved kids. And so part of the beauty of this text is to show us just how passionate God is for us to hold fast to this confession that God is so passionate for us to hold fast that he sent Jesus to be our high priest to help us. In fact, there's something really, really important about Jesus being our high priest that, that the author unpacks further in verses 15 and 16 that we'll spend the rest of our time looking at. But before we, we dive into who this high priest is, we need to understand how how difficult the Christian life actually is. Like, this is really hard to hold fast to our confession with all of the temptations and trials that you and I endure. And so if, if you kind of walk in here and you're not struggling and you're not wrestling and, and you're not being challenged to hold on to the confession of your faith, I, I wonder if, if you're even holding fast to begin with. I wonder if you're even struggling to begin with because this is really difficult and we need this high priest. And so we have a, a committed confession, verse 14, but verse 15 tells us number two is that we have a compassionate Savior. Okay, so the author of Hebrews says you need help, you've got this high priest, but let me show you what this high priest does for you. Look with me at verse 15. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, <clears throat> but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And so in helping us to be fully committed to our confession, the author of Hebrews further unpacks Jesus' role as our high priest, and he says something that is absolutely remarkable. He says that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. 
Now, that reality is extremely helpful and very, very practical in helping us to hold fast to our confession. The reason for that is because the author of Hebrews has just got finished unpacking the greatness of Jesus all throughout Hebrews, that he has created kind of this this picture of Jesus as being so glorious that the temptation is to imply that Jesus is is distant and detached from us. That the temptation to believe that Jesus is so glorious that he can't relate to what we go through, that he can't understand our lives and and the difficulties that we endure. And so the author of Hebrews says that that's not true at all. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, we don't have a God who is distant and cold and detached, but we have a God in Jesus who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, that we have a compassionate Savior. And that is really important in order for us to hold fast. I remember um, the, the first couple months um, transitioning to being a parent with Lindsay a few years ago and, and how difficult that transition was for us. And if you've been there, you know how many um, healthy marital discussions that that uh, tends to bring out in you and your spouse. And, uh, and I remember the first couple months kind of transitioning um, into parenthood, we had one of our best uh, discussions because of a comment that I made coming home from work one day. <clears throat> I came home from work, and, uh, and instead of asking Lindsay, hey, babe, how, how was your day? Like, is there anything I can do for you? I came home, and I said, so, so what did you do all day? And just kind of looked around, like, you've been home. Like, and, and, uh, and so that created a really good discussion for us, and uh, in which, in which Lindsay just kind of just shared her heart with me, and she was transitioning from working full-time to being um, a stay-at-home mom, and she loves being a mom, but she's different, and it's difficult. And, and so she's sharing her heart with me, and I remember thinking this. I remember thinking, okay, like, it's hard. I, I get it. Okay, I understand. Like, but you're home all day. Like, how hard can this be? I remember thinking that. And so a couple weeks later, Lindsay had a trip with her sister's where she went away all weekend, okay? So this is me and Ellie, just one-on-one for an extended period of time for the very first time. And, uh, and just to put it simply, it was really, really challenging. Like, it was difficult in ways that I didn't even anticipate it being difficult. So for you who are moms at home, you guys are the real MVPs, right? I mean, you guys have the harder job of the two for sure. But Lindsay got home from that weekend, and she says, so, so babe, How'd the weekend go? Like, I see that both of you are still alive, so that's good. But, but how was it? How'd it go? I remember talking to her and just saying, man, this was really hard. Like, this was, this was really difficult in ways that I didn't even anticipate. And we had just this beautiful discussion where it, it really took our marriage to a different level of intimacy because I caught a glimpse of the difficulty that she goes through on a daily basis, And so that weekend, it did two things for us. That number one, it renewed a compassion and a sympathy on my part in better understanding her world. And number two, it gave her more of a a confidence to approach me with with the difficulty of being a stay-at-home mom. That she was more confident to actually opening up and talking about what she was going through and what she was processing because I caught a glimpse of, of that life. And so, in a similar way, 
with Jesus being the perfect Son of God, he's not distant, he's not far off, but Jesus actually entered into the mess of humanity, that he went through everything that we go through, that he was tempted and he went through trials so that he's able to sympathize with what you and I go through, that there's this compassion that Jesus has because he lived it, because he went through it, and it should instill in us a confidence to draw near to Jesus because we know that he actually understands. And so Jesus entered into our mess. He doesn't stand at a distance. And the reason for that is because of the second half of verse 15. Look at it with me. It says, But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus can sympathize with us because he was tempted in every respect as we are, yet did not sin. But what in the world does this mean? What does it mean that Jesus was tempted in every respect as we are? Well, it means that Jesus' own experience of suffering and trials during his earthly life has equipped him so that he's able to support us in our sufferings and our temptations. So in every respect, this points to the reality of his humanity and the extent of his human experience. So it's not that Jesus was human and did not hunger. It's not that Jesus was human and, and was not fatigued. It's not that Jesus was human and, and did not experience stress and did not experience the weaknesses that you and I experience. No, he experienced the full measure of humanity, yet without a sinful nature. And so for those of you who are philosophical and maybe a little bit deep, you're probably wondering, so was Jesus able to sin then? Like, was it possible for Jesus to actually sin? Well, yes and no. I know you don't like that answer, but let me unpack that. Yes and no. So on one hand, because Jesus was really human, he was able to think, he was able to feel, he was able to reason, he was hungry and tired and all those things, which means that there was a natural ability to sin on Jesus's part, but Jesus did not have the moral ability to sin. He didn't have a sinful, a sinful nature. And so what I mean by moral ability is, is that you are bad enough to choose to sin, that there's enough badness in you that you choose to sin Jesus didn't have any of that. See, in order to sin, you have to have the desire to sin, and Jesus did not have that desire to sin, so Jesus could not sin. So, so follow this with me. So what you have with those two realities of, of a natural ability and yet not the moral ability is that Jesus knew the fullest extent of temptation and trial, yet it was not diluted by the disease of sin, Okay, so because Jesus did not sin, he was not battling temptation with, with kind of sin-colored lenses on like you and I have on. That in other words, Jesus saw the depths of temptation and struggle even more than you and I do because his view and experience was not tainted by sin. So maybe to go a step deeper here. So you might be wondering, okay, well, if Jesus could not sin, then can he actually sympathize with us who go through temptation and can sin? 
Notes say that Jesus did not sin. He did not need to be a sinner in order to sympathize with us who are sinners. Now, let me, let me show you a quote by C.S. Lewis who puts it much better than I do. He says, says this, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means, that this is an obvious lie, that only those who resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. That a man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. But Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation actually means. And so we ought not assume that sinlessness or the absence of sin nature makes the temptation any less real or powerful. In fact, it seems that Jesus understands the weight and pressure of trials and temptation at a level that you and I will never fully understand. In fact, even to take that uh, another degree, that Jesus went through temptation that you and I will never go through. That because he was the Son of God, he had temptations that you and I will never experience. Look at Matthew 4, with that showdown between Satan, that Satan tempted Jesus. He said, because you're the Son of God, or if you're the Son of God, change these stones into bread. The last time I checked, you and I will never experience that kind or that level of temptation, yet Jesus resisted. So I know that we're getting a little deep here. We're getting a little philosophical. So let me raise it up a little bit, and let me point out three reasons why this helps us hold fast to our confession. Three practical reasons why this is important, that Jesus was tempted and yet did not sin. Here's number one, is that Jesus understands what you go through. That because Jesus was tempted, but because he did not sin, Jesus understands what you go through. He can identify and relate to the struggles and the temptations that you and I feel. And I would say that even more than what we experience or know, that Jesus knows your weaknesses better than you do, that he knows your temptations better than you do, that Jesus knows the strategies that sin likes to use against you better than you do. And so the fact that Jesus understands and Jesus knows what we go through, that should create more of an intimacy in our relationship with God, a type of lean-in posture, not leaning away. And, and we know this to be true in, in, our, in our earthly relationships, whether with your spouse or with your friends, but having misunderstanding in a relationship tends to create distance or tension. That when you have misunderstanding, like if someone doesn't understand what you're saying or, or how you feel, we tend to put walls up with that person. And so the fact that Jesus understands what we go through and he understands even more than we understand ourselves, that should create intimacy and in us actually drawing near to Jesus because he understands now, number two is that Jesus, because he was tempted and did not sin, Jesus is concerned with what you go through. So he doesn't just understand what you go through. He's not just aware or have knowledge of it, 
but there's a compassion and an empathy on Jesus' part in the temptations that you face and in the trials that you go through. Jesus has a, a vested interest in the temptations that you go through because he knows what's on the line in those moments, that he knows how appealing that sin is when you're in the midst of temptation or trial. And so Jesus is really concerned about you holding fast to your confession because he understands. And number three here is another practical reason why it's important that Jesus was tempted but did not sin is that Jesus is qualified to help you. That because he's gone through temptation in every respect as we are, yet did not sin, that means that he is the most qualified and equipped to give us what we need when we need it. That the person who falls into committing sin again and again has no clue what you and I need to defeat sin, but the one who conquered sin does know. In fact, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18 says this. It says, For because he, Jesus himself, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so Jesus doesn't just understand, Jesus doesn't just show compassion and is concerned, but Jesus actually takes action when we struggle in temptation and in trial. So more on that in a moment. But when you look at that question of why the incarnation matters, and, and why does it matter that Jesus was tempted yet did not sin, it's impossible to conclude that Jesus doesn't understand you. It's impossible to conclude that Jesus doesn't understand all the different nuances of the struggles that you face and what you are actually wrestling with. I mean, when you stop and you think about all the things that Jesus went through, all the things that Jesus experienced, that Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends with Judas Iscariot. Have you, have you ever been there before? I mean, Jesus was abandoned by his closest friends in the disciples. Have you ever been there before? I mean, Jesus went through such intensity with stress the night before he went to the cross in, in the Garden of Gethsemane that he was literally sweating drops of blood. Have you ever been stressed out in life? Have you ever experienced hunger and fatigue? Jesus has, and Jesus can relate to what you are going through, and he understands and shows compassion and actually enters into our struggle. And so all of that, that reality that we have a compassionate Savior should cause us to lean in and to draw near, which is number three here. Section number three is having a confident access. So verse 14 is about having this confession that we are to be fully committed to. And then the author of Hebrews moves through and says, this is how you stay fully committed to this confession is by looking at your high priest, who is not only compassionate, but Jesus has enabled us to have full access to God. Now read with me verse 16. <clears throat> it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love this. The author specifies to not only to draw near, but he even tells us where to draw near specifically. 
that this is the second command in our passage, to draw near to the throne of grace. Now, in the Old Testament, the, the throne of grace was referred to as the mercy seat. Okay, now, in the Old Testament, the, the mercy seat was not just located in the temple, but the mercy seat was located in the Holy of Holies behind the veil where God's presence was manifested. And this mercy seat could only be accessed one time of year by one person, the high priest. Okay, so, so track with me here. The author of Hebrews is saying that we have full access to the throne of grace, not just one time of year, not just by one person, but all who have Jesus as their high priest. Okay, now think about that for a moment. That for the Old Testament, that the common worshipers could get on the outer limits of, of kind of the sanctuary in the temple. And, and the regular priest could get to the altar, but only that high priest could get to, the, to God's presence in that mercy seat, in the Holy of Holies. And yet what the author of Hebrews is saying is that you and I have full, complete, confident access to God's presence 24-7. Like that is, that is a stunning reality. That is one of the, the, the most significant benefits of Jesus being our high priest is that you can experience the presence of God 24-7 if Jesus is your high priest. It's crazy. It's, it's mind-blowing. And so what that should cause us to do is we should want God's presence all the more. That this is no longer limited access to one time of year, but we can access it all the time. And so it should cause us, what the author of Hebrews says, it should cause us to draw near to the throne of grace. And I love, I love this word to draw near. The tense of this verb is, it's in the imperfect tense, which, which means the action of drawing near should be an ongoing occurring again and again. That this isn't just a one-time thing. To draw near is not just on Sunday mornings at church, but to draw near to God should be the theme of your life. That you should be drawing near, not just during the good times of your life, but all the time. You should draw near, not just, not just when you're avoiding sin and you've got a good streak going, but you should be drawing near to God all the time. That you shouldn't just draw near to God when you're pressed with a significant decision that's before you, but you should draw near to God 24-7, every moment of the day, being aware of God's presence because Jesus has purchased access for you. That you draw near personally in your own time with the Lord throughout the day, that you draw near within your family or with, within your friends, drawing near to the presence of God, that you draw near in your community, in your small group, in your Bible study, that you draw near to God at work, that you draw near to God at school, that you draw near to God when you're with other people, that you're so aware and in touch with the presence of God, that you're constantly drawing near to him. And I love how the author of Hebrews, he, he says, don't just draw near to God, but he explains how to draw near or the manner in which we are to draw near. Verse 16, did you catch it? He says, draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, with boldness to draw near because this access has not been made available to you because of you and your performance, but because of Jesus and his performance, and what he has accomplished. And so, follower of Jesus, how, how's your confidence level this morning with, with God's presence? 
How's your, how's your confidence level and your, and your boldness in your prayer life? I mean, how, how's your confidence level when you, when you approach God in the word? Do you have a type of boldness because you have Jesus as your, as your high priest? Or how about your confidence level when, when you're talking about God with other people? Do you have a type of boldness that you're approaching God's presence, not based on yourself, but because of what Jesus has done for you. So I think far too often in the Christian life, we, we fall into this temptation that our spiritual confidence is dependent on me. It's dependent on my own performance and, and how well I'm doing spiritually. And yet, our confidence level is solely based on Jesus Christ, who has accomplished everything for us in order to instill a boldness to approach God. So what that means is that you can approach God knowing that if you're in Christ, God's never going to turn you away. That God's always going to bend his ear towards you because you are in Christ. So we have this confidence to approach him. And then the last phrase in verse 16 shows us that drawing near to God's throne of grace with confidence means that we actually receive something. He says that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. That to receive mercy is an assurance that past sin has been dealt with and has been paid for, that your past sins have been covered. But to find grace, it points to an inner strengthening to endure testing and trial and temptation because we need both. We need both mercy and we need grace in order to hold fast to our confession. So both are given to followers of Jesus because of what Jesus has experienced and what he has accomplished. That Jesus lived, Jesus suffered, he went through temptations, he went through trials, and so Jesus is best equipped to know exactly what we need and when we need it. Think about that for a moment. That Jesus knows exactly what you need when you're stressed out. Jesus knows exactly what you need when you feel misunderstood by people around you. That Jesus knows exactly what you need when you're hungry and when you're tired and when you're dry and when you experience all of those weaknesses, Jesus knows exactly what that is like and he knows exactly what kind of grace you need in that time of need. It's almost like we get this picture of, of God who's, who's up in heaven and, and he's, he's sitting on the throne, and you've got Jesus who's at the right hand of the Father, and he's living to always intercede for us as believers. And you almost get this picture, and I don't know if this is exactly how it's played out, but you almost get this picture of, of Jesus who's looking out at his followers, at us, and when we experience difficulty or trial or temptation, it's almost like Jesus is sitting there thinking, I know what that's like. Like, they need this kind of grace because they're stressed out here. Or, or they're experiencing this kind of a trial. I know what they need. They need this kind of mercy and this kind of grace. And it's almost like Jesus is communicating to the Father, to God, or whoever, however that trinity works, exactly what we need because he's been there and because he can relate with what we go through. It's almost like Jesus sends us these personalized packages of grace because he's lived it. And because he understands and he can sympathize with what we go through. Man, that just, that changes everything in how we relate to God. 
and how we talk to God and how we think about God because he understands what we go through. That he's not up in heaven thinking, man, that looks like a difficult thing. Man, just, just suck it up and, and keep going. But no, he actually enters into our trial and give us grace in our time of need. And I just love that phrase, in time of need. Like, it, it makes me wonder, aren't we always in need of grace? Like, aren't we always in need of grace and mercy? Like, I, I know for me, I always am. And I, I almost think that, like, spiritual maturity is just code for understanding that you're incredibly needy for grace. I think that the more that you mature, you, you understand that you're constantly in grace. So spiritual maturity is not thinking that you don't need grace. It's, it's understanding that you need more and more and more grace in order to become more like Jesus. And in fact, our greatest need is what drove Jesus into the incarnation. That our greatest need was, was to be made right with God in a relationship with him. And that, that reality drove Jesus to step out of heaven and become a baby, become a man, live a sinless, perfect life, die in the place of our sins so that we might be made right with God. And so why does the incarnation matter? Why does it matter that, that Jesus was tempted? It's because during the Christmas season and, and during this time in which we kind of press pause and we reflect on the incarnation, we're reminded that Jesus entered our world, that Jesus experienced all of our weaknesses and our trials and our temptations, yet did not sin. And so Jesus is able to sympathize and to unleash his grace and his mercy to us. That during the incarnation, we're reminded that even though this might be a painful time for many of us, that the incarnation reorients our hearts to understand that Jesus knows what it's like and he is near to us. So that even though you might feel like your world is just falling through, you might feel like the bottom of your life is falling out, you can still sing joy to the world during this season because you have a high priest who is near to you and who is for you and he is not against you. So I just want to encourage us just to lean in, to draw near to that type of high priest, not away during this Christmas season. So let's pray together. God, we do give you praise and thanks for being this high priest who knows exactly what we go through. God, we thank you that you are the God who is not distant, is not cold, is not far off. God, we thank you that you stepped out of heaven, that you who were full of richness and glory and you left the riches of heaven, and you became poor, and you were born of a virgin. And we thank you, God, that you're able to relate with what we go through. God, I pray for those of us who are going through a difficult time during this time of year. God, that you would continue to unleash that type of grace and mercy to us. God, that you would be so near to the brokenhearted during this time of year, Lord, that we might lean into you. So God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.